these three great answers, the first one is a great commission. A great commission. Remember, this passage picks up after we, where we left off last week with Mary at the tomb. She had seen the risen Lord Jesus and, and Jesus uh, didn't reveal himself to the other disciples, but he revealed himself to Mary and then he sent Mary back as the first witness to tell the other disciples, I've seen the Lord and to tell the disciples that uh, Jesus was ascending to the Father. So that morning, all this had happened on that, that Sunday morning. And we pick up our, verse, uh, our story here in verse 19. Now, the, the text may be a bit difficult to read on the, on the screen. We don't have a massive screen. But if you want to follow along, you, follow along in your Bibles, there are some spare Bibles up on the back table if you want to make use of one. But we're picking up in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So Jesus is appearing on that same day, that Sunday. Mary had met Jesus that morning at the tomb at dawn. And then this evening, that evening, uh, Jesus meets them in a locked room on a Sunday. And the fact that Jesus rose on the Sunday, the first day of the week, is why we as Christians naturally meet and tend to have our, our church gatherings and, and, and rest in the Lord on Sundays. Because remember, back in the day before the coming of Jesus Christ, the Jews were... The, the people of God were called to Sabbath on Saturday. And so uh, it was though they lived their life in anticipation of, the, of, of an upcoming rest because Saturday was the last day of the week. They would work and then enter into their rest. But now it is as though we work from our rest or from our resting in the Lord, from our from the first day of the week. It is like the opening of a new age with the coming of the Lord on that first day of the week. He has come on the Lord's day. And so there are sometimes in different contexts and for different reasons, Christians will meet on other days of the week as their kind of standard weekly gathering. But usually we meet on the Lord's day in perpetual remembrance of the resurrection of our Lord on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And that's in part why it annoys me when calendars, they want to put, they want to put the Saturday and the Sunday together at the end of the week because it's meant to be the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day, the start of this new gospel age. So Jesus comes and rises from the dead on the first day of the week. He meets with Mary in the morning. He meets with the disciples in a locked room in the evening. These disciples are afraid. They're afraid of the law. They didn't want to be next. If Jesus was taken out, well, who's next on the list? It's going to be his tightest group of disciples, you know, Peter and James and John. But they're locked up. They're probably uh, with the, the other uh, uh, late, uh, women disciples there. Uh, and there's the, the, dis the group of disciples, potentially some other hangers-on, like 
some of those who will later be uh, a replacement, considered as replacements for Judas. But they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to be next on the list. They're going to be next on the chopping block. And this is a natural thing. We see it often. Whenever there is a, an, a group of people who are, uh, um, or, or, or somebody who kind of sticks their head up, who uh, has something to say against the powers that be, well, what's the easiest thing to do? Well, you take out somebody and make a, an example of them, and then the rest shut up. We've seen that in our last few years with people uh, being told to be quiet. And if you don't be quiet, we will arrest you. And not just around the world, but in Australia too. It's a natural tendency of humans to see when somebody gets taken out, I better, I better play it safe. I better shut up. I better put my head down. Otherwise, I'll be next. So they're hiding and locked away in a room. And yet... Jesus stands among them. Even though they had secured themselves away from the world, Jesus seeks them out and he gathers with them. And so this is something miraculous here. Whether or not he uh, unlocked the door miraculously and walked through, or whether he kind of just appeared through the walls, we don't know. But somehow, miraculously, he appeared there among them. And he says some amazing words. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he shows them the physical evidence of his resurrection. He showed them his hands and his side. He showed them a body, a body that had been wounded. But we might be sitting here thinking, especially if you've read some more of the New Testament, you might be sitting there thinking, hang on. The resurrection body is meant to be uh, the body in its, at its best, right? It's meant, the resurrection body is meant to be in a fullness of our humanity, a whole humanity, a healed body. And yet here is Jesus with his resurrection body, yet he still has wounds. And I think these are meant to be signs of the, of the battle that has been won, symbols. These, these wounds are now emblems of the salvation that has been won like the uh, picture in Revelation of the lamb that was slain but that lived, who looked like he had been killed but who was still living. It's a picture of the atonement that has been made by Jesus in his body. They are, they are markers of the, of the salvation that has been won. And in some sense, it kind of reminds me of our own uh, wounds, perhaps the battle scars that we have worn and the trials that God has brought us through. Or even as we look back at uh, the sins of our past, we look back in shame and disgust that we did such awful things. But through Christ now they are made, they're redeemed. They are, they are not good in and of themselves, but they are signs of forgiveness. We look back and we say, I have been forgiven for even that. And it changes the way that we look at the things of our past. They are signs of God's grace and forgiveness. Even though they're not to be celebrated or glorified, they have a new meaning to us as signs of our rescue. And how do the disciples respond to seeing Jesus in their midst bodily? They respond with joy. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
They saw Jesus, their, their Lord, their Master, the Son of God, back among them. But I don't think their joy was only on the basis of uh, only on the basis of the fact that they saw somebody that they loved now back with them. I think it was also the fact that they're starting to see Jesus' words being fulfilled. It would take some time for them to fully comprehend the breadth and the depth and the magnitude of what had happened with Jesus coming back from the dead. But we see Jesus' words being fulfilled. Even the fact that he said they would be turned to joy. Earlier in, in, in chapter 16, Jesus had said, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. When the, when the, when the Jews put Jesus to death, they were happy. They thought, they, had, um, they thought they'd won. And yet the disciples wept and mourned. But you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And that is what's happening right now in this passage as Jesus meets them bodily. They have their teacher back. They have joy in Jesus' words being fulfilled. There is joy to be had in a defeat of death. But Jesus says to them, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You may have, saw, you might, you may have seen, although the, the slide, I didn't bring it up before, but the, I've titled this sermon, The Commissioner. The Commissioner. Because here we see Jesus commissioning his disciples. For you word buffs out there, commissioner is actually somebody who receives a commission. But I'm trying to use it as a verb, somebody who gives a commission, who commissions others. Jesus was, after all, on a, on a mission, on a commission from God, the Father, to do what he did. But now he's passing that mission on to, to continue his mission through his disciples, through his people. And so Jesus here is giving that great commission, this great commission. here where he says peace be upon you well peace be with you sorry this is the second time that he said that in our passage but it's out of this peace that he sends his disciples and he sends them as he has been sent as the father sent me i am sending you that's important to remember here that jesus is doing this in the same way that he was sent by the father there's something wonderful and beautiful about this, that we are joining in with the mission of God. It's not something that Jesus has got going on on the side, a side project. No, we are joining in the mission of God the Father through Jesus the Son. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And how did God send Jesus into the world? He sent Jesus into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he descends his disciples with the Spirit. He sent, his, he sent Jesus into the world speaking the words of the Father. Remember, Jesus says specifically several times over the book of John, I only say what the Father says. I come with the message from the Father. I say what the Father has told me to say. As disciples of Jesus sent out on the mission of Jesus, we too go out speaking the words of God, his gospel, his good news. We go out to call in the sheep, 
Jesus says, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. So as we go out and we proclaim this good news, God's people will hear and they will respond. We are sent by Jesus out into the world. These these disciples that he was speaking to were sent, but each generation of disciples that follows is on that same mission. And they're on that same mission with the Spirit of God. Now, you might have noticed that as I read that, I skipped over the words that said, where it says, breathed on them. I skipped over the on them, because the on them is not actually in the text. It is, they're just trying to make sense. Like, why would it say Jesus breathed and then something and moved on? But technically, on them is just given there to try and smooth the translation. It is that Jesus breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And you might think, well, this is a bit weird. Why are you recording that somebody breathed? Is he sighing? Is he just taking a deep breath? What we see here is a connection between the Holy Spirit and breath. We use the word spirit and breath quite separately in English. But when we're talking about the languages of the Bible, the Greek and the Hebrew, spirit and breath are united. And if you put yourself in the mindset of an ancient person, if somebody stops breathing, the spirit has left them. Like breath is the same, is, con, is connected with the idea of spirit, your spirit, your, your life. And so it's as though Jesus is saying this, this way that Jesus breathed and then he talks about the Holy Spirit, there's this connection of him, him giving the life, giving the breath of life to his disciples He will send the Spirit. Some of us uh, might get caught up here thinking, well, hang on a second. I know in Acts, at Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit comes. So how come Jesus is saying, receive the Holy Spirit back here on the day that he resurrected? Well, what we're seeing here is a bit of a foretaste of what is to come on Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the the wind, again, wind, breath, air, connected with spirit. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, this is a kind of a, a foretaste of what is coming. After all, Jesus said, after I've ascended to the Father, after I've gone back to the Father, then I'll send you the counsellor, the, the helper. And so, Jesus hasn't ascended to the Father yet. So, the Spirit hasn't come in the same way yet. But Jesus is... It's kind of preparing them, getting them ready. It's not as if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work, but the Holy Spirit comes in a special way at Pentecost that he hasn't come yet. So he gives this commission, receive the Holy Spirit. If you, sorry, as, I'm, as, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says something that's very interesting. He says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, if we're not careful, what you might read here is Jesus is saying that the disciples can choose who does or doesn't get into heaven. Because after all, we cannot be right before God unless we have our sins taken away. So, is Jesus saying the disciples get to choose who goes to be with God? No, he's not saying that. But what he, is, what he is saying here is that you guys are going to be the ones who tell people this. You're going to be the one who are telling people whether or not their sins are forgiven. 
You're going to be taking the news about Jesus out into the world. And so you're going to be saying to some people, your sins are forgiven. But the flip side of that is that there are some whose sins are not forgiven. And how do we know whose sins are forgiven or who are not forgiven? Well, you know, based on the message that comes about who gets their sins forgiven, those who turn to Jesus. And so there is a connection with God's people, the church, and the pronouncement of whose sins are forgiven and not forgiven, but not in the sense of the church deciding, but in the sense of the church pronouncing what is true and right according to what God has said. And so this is, in some sense, connected to the idea of church discipline. When somebody openly continues in sin in the midst of the church, then if they do not repent, at some point, the church has to band together and say, we are saying your sins are not forgiven. You have revealed yourself as somebody who is outside of God's church in, in unrepentance. And so that is a pronouncement from heaven in some respect, not because the church has decided it to be so, but because the church is uh, speaking the truth of God. But it also means there is great joy in the fact that, like before, when we prayed our prayer of confession, and when we say, when, when somebody from the front says, your sins are forgiven, there is a great joy in that, knowing that this is the truth, this is something that is being revealed to us from heaven. And the way that this is written here, getting into some grammar, I know we've spoken about grammar a little bit already, but the fact that, is, that it says here that the idea of being forgiven is a, is a perfect tense. It's a thing that is done and continually, continually in effect. If you say that somebody's sins are forgiven, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. It's a continual, ongoing thing. It gives the sense of a completed past action with continuing results in the present. So what do we do with this? Well, we are that next generation of disciples who are sent out into the world, sent by Christ on his mission with the Holy Spirit to pronounce the forgiveness of sins, or in some cases is to pronounce judgment that there are people who are willfully standing against God and stand outside his kingdom. It's a message of good news to those who will repent and, and receive it, but it's a message of judgment to those who will reject Christ because they are even more so without excuse. The second great thing we do in response to the resurrection of Jesus is we have a great faith, a great faith. And this is shown to us uh, in, the, in the story of doubting Thomas. Now, of course, calling him Doubting Thomas is a little bit mean because he actually does believe. He starts off doubting, but he comes to faith. He believes. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I think many of us could identify with Thomas. We would 
we want to be in that same position. You're testi testifying to me about something miraculous that happened. Where's the evidence? Show me. Show me this risen Lord Jesus. I will not believe. Many of us want that empirical evidence of somebody standing there in the flesh. But when we think about it, we usually hold God to a higher standard that we do uh, hold to our, ourselves in other parts of our life. Sure, uh, many people say, you know, I need, to, I need to see it. Show me the risen Lord Jesus. Show me the proof that God exists. But in most of our life, we live without needing empirical evidence to kind of believe how the world works. But for some reason, when it comes to things like this, we need... We, we desire this empirical evidence or we will outright reject belief, despite all the other evidence that might uh, uh, point to it. We want to see it with our own eyes. But, I don't know. We can't see atoms with our own eyes, but most of us are quite happy to believe uh, what we're told, that the world um, is built on particles that we can't see. But you can understand how Thomas finds himself in this situation and he wants to see, I want to touch. I need to do it with my own senses in order to believe. And Jesus condescends to Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas is confronted with the truth and he must make a decision. Jesus reveals himself to Thomas bodily, condescends to Thomas to actually let him touch his resurrection body. And Thomas is confronted with that truth. He must make a decision. But before we get to that decision, I want to point out that it says here, peace be with you, again. This is the third time in our passage that, has, that we've been told, peace be with you. It's almost as though it's a repeating refrain that, that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. Every, with the coming of the resurrected Lord, there comes peace. And this is what Jesus promised. He had promised when the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He told the disciples this before he left, that peace was coming for them, that he was going to give them peace. And here, in the wake of the resurrection, he is pronouncing time and time again, peace, peace, peace. And here, again, before he died, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here to these disciples who are locking themselves away for fear of what's coming to them, Jesus tells them to have peace. In the face of, the, of what's coming, it would be very natural to have fear. It would be very natural. But Jesus calls his people to have peace. And because there is a triumph over the grave, that means we can face anything. We can face anything that the world throws at us because we know that there is more and better to come. Because this life is not all that there is. It means we can lay down our life and give up our life because we can have peace 
even in the midst of what is happening around us. Even though an army encamp around me and face off against us, I will not fear, for the Lord is with me. We can have peace in Christ. The resurrection brings peace, and not a peace with the world. I think many of us, when we think about peace, we might be thinking about all of these kind of, uh, we might be thinking about, um, let's say, countries facing off against one another, and they come to an agreement, and then there is peace, right? But we, that's one way we think about peace. Two kind of warring or opposing sides are, um, you know, basically stop fighting one another. But this isn't the kind of peace that God brings. God brings the kind of peace that comes through, dare I say, the word domination. And not a domination in the sense that Jesus calls his disciples to run around with swords, but in the sense that he is coming to overcome the enemies. This, this peace comes because he has defeated death. Death is not an enemy anymore. This peace comes because Jesus has taken away our sins. This peace comes because... Jesus has reconciled us with God. This is the kind of peace that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. Not a learning to live with it kind of peace, but a peace that overcomes all the enemies. Peace with God means that our souls are not perpetually searching for a way out or for a better deal. It's a peace of belonging and resting in God. But back to Thomas, just to finish off what he was saying, Thomas said to him, when he saw the risen Lord Jesus with the, with the wounds, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus pronounces a beatitude. Your kids might have learnt the beatitudes from uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a beatitude, a blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas sees and he confesses that Jesus is not only master but God. Some people try and kind of divide these things. Jesus is saying, my Lord to Jesus, you know, my master, and then my God, as in he's praising God. But that's a bit of a mangling of the text. Jesus, Thomas is professing Jesus as his master and his God. And this ties us all the way back to the opening chapter of John where we were told that the word was with God and the Word was God and the Word was made flesh. Jesus is God. And here at the end of John, Thomas is confessing that with his mouth, my Lord and my God. He sees and he believes. But Jesus pronounces this blessing on those who do not get to see the bodily resurrected Jesus before they believe. They are blessed because they believe. But it's not as though you've been left hanging it's not as though because Jesus hasn't appeared to us bodily, we are worse off. We have all that we need to believe. We have the testimony of history. We have the testimony of these words that God has pr provided for us down through the ages. And we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit at work confirming these words. We don't need the risen Lord Jesus because we have uh, like bodily present to believe because we have God's word and God's spirit at work. We are blessed to believe through these things. And lastly and, and briefly, we're told about another great thing that comes as a response of the resurrection. We have a great book 
These last two verses, Bible studyers love verses like these. You know why? Because we don't have to guess about the reason why a particular book was written. You know, sometimes you're reading through um, Esther and you're going, why was this written? Why is this in the Bible again? It doesn't even talk about God. That's a bit of a brain teaser to work out another day. But John doesn't leave us wondering why he's written. He says, he says um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're told up front why John is writing these things. And it also tells us that, as we've talked about before, John makes editorial choices. He leaves some stuff out. He puts some stuff in. But the reason that he's put in what he's put in is because he thinks that this will help you believe in Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiring him to do that work, that is exactly what has happened down through the ages to today. We believe on the basis of this good news that we've received, on the basis of the historical evidence and, and record that has been shown to us by John. We've been reminded time and time again as we've read this book, you're probably sick of me saying this, but this book was written so that we might believe and have life. It's a book that brings life because in believing in Jesus, in believing in the one who died for us, in believing in the one who was resurrected, we too can join him in that life. He will give us resurrection life. We will join him in, in going through death and, and living yet again. Or if he returns before you die, in escaping death altogether. John wrote so that we could have life. And you will have life if you believe in Jesus. Just recapping where we've been this morning. We've, we've been talking about the response to the resurrection. What has happened after the resurrection? What do we do with this? Well, firstly, we have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace um, because he has overcome our enemies. But this peace isn't just for us to kind of sit here and enjoy and go, wow, isn't that great? This is a peace that we want other people to know. And so God has commissioned Jesus' disciples through Jesus to take this message out, to go out with the words of God in the power of the Spirit so that all God's people might hear and turn to him. We take out the message of a resurrected Jesus so that people might believe in him and believe in him without necessarily seeing him bodily. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when you have faith, when you hear, you receive the forgiveness of God and you have life. You have life. Let's thank God for that life now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank you that his uh, atonement was completed, he's paid our sin, and that death is now defeated. We thank you, Lord, that we can join Jesus in that life. And we thank you, Lord, that it comes by faith, not by anything we bring to the table. Lord, as recipients of this faith... We pray, Lord, that you would help us to take this good news out to the world, that others might be able to hear and believe, that they might have faith 
the blessed faith of believing without even seeing the bodily resurrected Jesus, but hearing through the word. So please, Lord, help us to be messengers, uh, uh, carriers of this word. We thank you, Lord, that through receiving this word, we can receive eternal life. Through believing in Jesus, the Messiah, we can have life in his name. Please, Lord, bring us to life in Christ. That all of those who are sitting in this room, we pray that each of us might find that life in Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and Lord, have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future sins, to rest in the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Lord, that is, that is ours in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.